Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. Let's find out what's been making scientific headlines around the world. And the space tourism industry might be about to take a knock before it's even got off the ground, thanks to new research confirming that microgravity appears to be bad for your eyes. Are you a would-be astronaut, Kat? No, I get really bad travel sickness, so I just think space would be the end for me. (laughs) Well, there's a paper which has come out in the journal Radiology this week. It's by Larry Kramer and his colleagues. He's at the University of Texas Medical School in Houston. And this paper is a follow-up of an initial paper from last November, which they published in Ophthalmology. This time they've looked at 27 astronauts who have, on average, 108 orbit days. And what these patients show in their MRI scans are significant changes to both their eyes but also their pituitary glands. So in two-thirds of them there are changes. What they've done is to scan in thin slices right through the heads of these people. They find that in nine of the 27 there's evidence of increased deposition of fluid around their optic nerve sheaths. So the optic nerve is invested in connective tissue and there's fluid which is built up under that. In six of the astronauts the backs of their eyeballs are flat, so when they leave Earth, their eyes are a globular, spherical shape. If you look in the paper, it's rather worrying because the backs of the eyes, where the optic nerve goes into this eyeball, it's flat. And four of the astronauts have got bulges in their optic disc. This is the structure inside the eyeball. You can see if you look in with an ophthalmoscope where the nerves come out and then run into the retina. And in an additional three of the astronauts, there are tiny cavities opening up inside their pituitary glands. And this tallies with what NASA have said in the past that they've known for a long time, which is that people who spend a long time in space do report problems with their vision. People who do short space journeys about a third of the time report visual problems. And people who do long tours in space get problems 60% of the time. And these are problems with either an exacerbation of short or long sightedness. So what the researchers speculate in their paper is that this is a problem to do with fluid because if you are in microgravity for an extended period, the normal hydrostatic effect of gravity pulling water down in your body is lost and the water just builds up all around the body in various tissues. And this probably explains also why astronauts get a bit puffy-faced. If you look at them in pictures bobbing around on the International Space Station, their face is quite swollen, probably because of an accumulation of fluid. And what they think is happening is because in the brain it's a sealed space inside the vault of the skull, if fluid moves out of the bloodstream and collects in the tissue there, the tissue can't simply swell up like the astronaut's face, so it gets pressure put upon it. And as a result, structures change shape. And if this includes your eyeball, then the optics don't tend to work so well. And if it includes other things like your pituitary, then subsequently the nerves might not work so well. This does appear to be something that's important in people who spend extended periods of time in space. And so maybe the space tourism industry may or may not be impacted. But certainly if we are seeking to send people to Mars, which I know is a a project that that is on the table, that's going to be at least a year in space and that could be a problem. Mm. That's uh, put your dreams of going to space on hold, maybe, Chris. 
To move from space to something more down to earth, the month of March is widely recognised as Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. This is a disease that affects nearly 40,000 men every year in the UK and many hundreds of thousands more worldwide. But while we have screening programmes, certainly here in the UK, for breast, cervical and bowel cancer, we don't have a national screening programme for prostate cancer, even though there's a blood test, the PSA test, which measures the levels of PSA, this is a protein produced by the prostate gland, and it can be raised in men with prostate cancer. Uh, Why is that? Well, the reason that it's not used as a national test yet is because doctors simply don't know how reliable it is. And the problem is that PSA levels can be raised by a number of non-cancerous conditions, including infections and just prostate overgrowth, so it's not really very specific for cancer. And there's also a small but significant proportion of men with prostate cancer who don't have high PSA levels. And finally, even if a man does have a raised PSA level and does have prostate cancer, it's hard to know whether it's an aggressive cancer that needs urgent treatment and along with that does come the risk of serious side effects. Or it's a slow-growing cancer that could just be monitored over time. But if the test does pick up an aggressive cancer at an early stage, it can save a man's life. Now, because of this confusion, many research teams around the world have been doing really big studies to find out whether the benefits of PSA testing across large populations outweigh the risks. But frustratingly, new results following up a very big study of prostate screening don't actually provide any firm answers. What a nuisance. So what do they show? Well, the results have come from the European Randomised Study of Screening for Prostate Cancer, known as the ER SPC, and it was set up in 1991 to just try and figure out the effectiveness of PSA testing. And it's looking at men in the Netherlands, in Belgium, as well as Sweden, Finland, Italy, Spain and Switzerland. Now, these new results, and they're following up more than 180,000 men after 11 years, have just been published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In the study, the men were divided into two groups. One group were given PSA testing roughly once every four years, and the other group were left unscreened. But of course, they could go to the doctor if they noticed any symptoms. Now, the researchers found that the death rate from prostate cancer was just over 20% lower in the men who were PSA tested than the untested men. But after further calculations, the scientists actually showed that to prevent one death from prostate cancer during this 11-year period, more than 1,000 men would need to be invited for screening and nearly 40 cancers detected. Now, this chimes with results from a similar study published two years, well, from this same study published two years ago. And a similar study in the US has also found that PSA testing has relatively little impact on saving lives from prostate cancer, but may be leading to more men being more likely to have treatment that causes side effects for a cancer that may not be aggressive. And where does this leave the average person in the street? I would say probably more confused than ever now. Well, it is very confusing and and certainly knowing someone who has been through this issue with a PSA test, it's very confusing for men and their families. At the moment, men in the UK are advised to discuss PSA testing with their GP who can tell them about the risks and the benefits. But this study and others like it around the world really highlight the problems with the PSA test and the fact that we urgently need more research to develop better tools for detecting these aggressive prostate cancers. So we need better research into bio markers, ways that you can tell what's an aggressive prostate cancer and what isn't. And if you can do this at an early stage, it will save lives and avoid men having to go through unnecessary treatment for tumours that aren't likely to be dangerous. Let's hope so. Kat, thank you. Also this week, how the intestine tells harmless food items from potentially harmful bacteria and parasites has been revealed by researchers in the US. 
Professor Mark Miller at Washington University in St. Louis was using a technique called two-photon imaging to study the intestines of living mice. These animals were special because one class of their immune cells had been made to grow so that they could be to glow so they could be seen easily. Now these are the cells called dendritic cells or DCs and they're known as antigen presenting cells because their job is to educate the immune system about what it should attack or ignore. But when Mark then fed these animals samples of sugars that had glowing labels so that he could follow how those food components got moved across the intestinal wall and introduced to the immune cells he wasn't expecting to see quite what he did. The surprising finding was that the cell that does this is a highly secretory cell. It's called a goblet cell, and its primary function is believed to be secreting mucus that provides a barrier or a protection to the epithelial layer. What we've found is that these cells, as they secrete, they also allow some of the luminal contents to be transported across the epithelium. So this is different from the process by which you would absorb nutrients or food It's a way to deliver very concentrated amounts of an antigen to an antigen-presenting cell. And it's a new function that we've discovered for the goblet cell, which has been studied for a very long time. Now, you looked at one particular tagged antigen. Obviously, it's slightly more complicated when we're eating a balanced diet and there are lots of things coming in. So have you got any idea as to whether or not those goblet cells discriminate between the good guys and the things we want to educate our immune system to ignore and the bad stuff that we actually want the immune system to attack? Or do those goblet cells transfer everything and the immune system makes that decision? That's a fascinating question. So what we think is that they're transporting mostly small, soluble peptides. So these can be parts of a protein or intact proteins. They can also be things like sugar. So we're using dextran as one of our model antigens. So I think if there's any discrimination, it's that it would prevent something large like maybe an intact bacterium from getting across, but allow these small soluble antigens to actually get across. But on the other hand, once the antigen comes across the epithelium, the antigen-presenting cells themselves have specific receptors to take up sugars or certain proteins. So even if there's a lack of specificity at the goblet cell step, the dendritic cell itself will be better at taking up certain substances. And that could also lead to a different outcome in terms of an immune response. If I have a healthy gut and I'm just presenting normal foodstuffs, then I can understand that being an absolutely perfect mechanism. But what about when I get a dose of Deli Belly or Montezuma's Revenge? I get bacteria there that I shouldn't have or an overgrowth of of even a parasite. Surely there will then be antigens going across the wall of the gut. How do you stop the immune system saying these are friendly? How do you make the immune system on that occasion decide to attack that foreign antigen? It's interesting that we've seen this function of goblet cells appears to be downregulated when you have a pathogenic infection. So it's as if the barrier, the mucosal barrier, tightens up. So that's one response. But the fact that the antigen is coming in with a pathogenic organism will cause inflammation. Pathogen-associated molecular patterns will, will stimulate dendritic cells in such a way that they promote an inflammatory immune response. So again, that would happen at the level of the the dendritic cell. And what about in allergy states and other disease states? Mm -hmm. We know that there's an association. If you give very young kids big doses of broad-spectrum antibiotics that clear out lots of the bacteria that should be there, they're then much more likely to develop allergy and diarrheal states later in life. Have you got any clues from the mechanism you've spotted how that sort of thing might actually be manifest, why it happens? 
Um, yes, we, we do. So, for example, in the paper, we used germ-free mice that lack the normal flora that would colonize the small intestine. And in that case, uh, we saw quite a lot of, of antigen uh, being transported across. So that uh, experiment is showing that the normal flora or the bacteria in the gut may very well regulate this process. So depending on what species of bacteria are present or whether or not it's pathogenic or non-pathogenic, um, that could tie in very closely with how much of that antigen is delivered across the epithelium and change the character of the subsequent immune response. And are you in a position now to manipulate this system? Do you understand what the trafficking system is so that you can go in and intervene and stop things that might provoke an allergy or indeed in someone who has an established allergy, stop it presenting itself to the immune system so that person's allergy goes away? Yeah, we are definitely working in that direction. So it turns out that we think this transport function is directly related to goblet cell secretion. And of course, we have both agonists and antagonists to either induce secretion or inhibit secretion. So we are looking in various models right now to see how either shutting down this goblet cell mediated antigen transport or upregulating it may affect outcomes in models of inflammatory bowel disease, for example. Professor Mark Miller from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. And he published that work this week in the journal Nature. Nanoparticles used routinely in wastewater cleanups could encourage bacteria to breed superbugs, new research has shown. In fact, this could have major implications for the way that we process sewage. It's a paper in the journal PNAS this week by Zhigang Chu, who's at the Institute of Health and Environmental Medicine in Tianjin in China. And what he and his colleagues were interested in is looking at the chemicals that are added to wastewater to do things like heavy metal cleanups or just flocculate material. So they looked at alumina, aluminium oxide, also nanoparticles of titanium dioxide, silicon dioxide and even iron oxide. And they found that in all cases, adding these nanoparticles to bacteria dramatically increased the rate at which bacteria share genes amongst themselves. And they did a very simple test where they added to a small number of the bacteria a test genetic sequence. It was a plasmid called RP4. And they then incubate the bacteria with different concentrations of these nanoparticles. And they found that the aluminium-based ones were the most potent. The outcome was that they could demonstrate a 200-fold increase in the presence of these nanoparticles of the bacteria sharing these genetic sequences amongst themselves. And to find out why, they did some electron microscopic studies where they look at the bacteria and they show that they've got damage to the membrane and the cells are showing signs of being stressed. And what they think happens is that the nanoparticles stress the cells and so the bacteria respond by upregulating or switching on various self-preservation mechanisms which includes swapping bits of DNA around because if someone else has got a bit of DNA that might be beneficial and help you to resist this challenge than the threat you're facing, you want it. Now you could say if there was only a tiny amount of this stuff naturally out there in a sewage treatment work it probably wouldn't make much of an odds but they were demonstrating this effect at concentrations of these particles much lower than it actually used in the treatment of wastewater. And so they're saying that if this wasn't a test sequence of RP4 DNA, it was a whole load of genetic material which was resistance factors for various antibiotics, you could very easily begin to breed superbugs which are resistant to everything. So we need to look at how these nanoparticles might actually be affecting the way in which the microbial world respond to us and to each other. So why isn't it, Kat? 
God, they're, they're plucky little buggers, these bacteria, aren't they? <laughs> anyway, now with a roundup of other science stories hitting the headlines this week, including new research revealing how the drug lithium works in mental health conditions, here's Hannah Critchlow. Scientists have come up with a new way to anticipate previously hard-to-predict drug side effects. During their development, most drugs are tested in isolation, meaning a patient only takes one drug at a time. But in the clinic, most patients end up being prescribed mixtures of different drugs at once to treat a range of diseases. And predicting how these mixtures might lead to side effects has always been extremely difficult. But now, writing in Science Translational Medicine, researchers at Stanford University have used data from 4 million patients to design a statistical system that can spot when potential problems might arise, including between combinations of drugs in routine current use, as lead author Nicholas Tatanetti explains. We identified a potential interaction between thiazides that treats hypertension and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are antidepressants. And we associated them with an increased prolonged QT interval. And this is a clinical risk factor for heart arrhythmia. So it's a potentially important clinical variable. A new form of uranium could make radioactive waste easier to reprocess in the future. Generating electricity from nuclear power inevitably produces radioactive materials that need recycling or long-term storage. At the moment, the estimated cost of clearing up just the UK's accumulating stock of nuclear waste is £70 billion. But now, Edinburgh University chemist Polly Arnold and her colleagues, writing in the journal Nature Chemistry, have discovered a new way to make clusters of uranium which may make these valuable radioactive materials easier to recycle. One of the things that happens when you process nuclear waste is you need to separate out all the different metal oxo components, the metal oxides. And things that can cause problems is when they cluster and form aggregates. But people don't know very much about how these form and then how to get rid of them. So the fact that we've seen this tiny beginning of a cluster suggests that it might lead us to think about new ways the clusters might form and then new ways to to deal with the nuclear waste processing that goes on at the moment. Scientists have uncovered how the drug lithium, which can help sufferers of bipolar disorder or manic depression, as it's also known, actually works. Lithium has been one of the main treatments for bipolar disorder for the last 60 years, but exactly how it works has remained a mystery. Now, writing in PLOS One and using cells cultured from mice, scientists have shown that lithium achieves its therapeutic effects by resetting the body's circadian clock, which it does by switching off a signalling enzyme called glycogen synthase kinase 3-beta. In people with mood disorders, this enzyme has been shown to be overactive. And finally, flies deprived of sex turned to alcohol, scientists have shown this week. One group of male flies were offered multiple mating opportunities. A second group were repeatedly rejected by a group of already sexually satisfied females. Provided with a choice of foods that either did or didn't contain alcohol, the flies that had been repeatedly rejected were much more likely to opt for the booze-soaked dish. According to the author Dr. Jalit Ophir from Janelia Farm Research Centre, Virginia. This is a basic science study, so it tells us better about how the brain represents social experience in terms of reward. And it has implications into understanding better the, the mechanisms that are involved in social reward, which is important to social-related disorders and also to addiction. And that study was published in the journal Science. 
That's Hannah Critchlow, who's probably gone down the pub right now, with our Naked Scientist News Flash. Transcripts and the references for all of our news this week can be found on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.